listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. This is week three of our series, Give It a Break. And today I get the, the privilege of talking to you about every pastor's favorite topic in the world, money, <laughs> finances. Pastor Rocky, did I draw a short straw while I was at youth camp? Like, I got the message and I'm like, oh man, no, seriously, in all seriousness, I am excited. I'm thankful for this opportunity and I feel like I am uniquely qualified to get to address this topic today because before I started on staff here at DCC, for almost a decade, I worked in the financial world. For almost 10 years of my life before I came here, I worked in finance, and so I learned a lot over that time, took a lot of courses, um, and, and just really dove into that and tried to become a subject matter expert on personal finances. So as I look around the room today, is there anyone that would identify with me and say that I am that person that I actually enjoy and love to balance the budget? Who are those people in the room? Yes, I see those hands that I enjoy sitting down and balancing the budget, going through, making sure all of the bills are paid. Sarah loves it, my wife, she loves it, but she loves it for a different reason. She loves it because she hasn't paid a bill since the day we got married. (laughs) She has fully cashed in on that benefit of marriage. She's figured a few things out in our marriage And that's one of them. Another one is every time I get in her car, she's got like 21 miles to empty. I don't know how she does it. I I may drive her car in three days or it might, might be three weeks. But when I get in that car, it's like, you better go get some gas right now. And she's got that figured out. But I love balancing the budget. It's just something I enjoy. Pastor Scott last week was talking about how he loves to Um, organize and clean up his shed. I guess my thing is I love making sure all the bills are paid, sitting down each month and just going through that process. It's very rewarding and satisfying to me. And Jesus had some interesting things to say whenever it comes to finances. When he talked about money, he took some very particular points and he would say things like, no one can serve Two masters, you'll be devoted to one and you'll despise the other, right? But it's because that he knew that humanity had this inclination in our heart to distort our perspective of money. We have this this thing within us, and I don't know what it is, but our relationship with money oftentimes just gets all kinds of skewed. So this morning, let me just share a couple of statistics with you that I found. I don't think these are going to shock anybody in the room, but I just want to share these with you. I found that it says online that America is one of the wealthiest nations in the world, or the wealthiest. I don't think that's a surprise to anyone. And depending on the metrics that you're using to kind of gauge that, Um, you could make the argument that we are the wealthiest nation in the world or we are at least one of the wealthiest nations. Another statistic that I found was that America is also the most in-debt nation in the world. Again, probably no one is surprised by this, right? And then I also found that America has the second highest rate of depression in the world. Now, 
I'm not saying that these are always directly correlated, but I also don't think this, there's any coincidence here that while we're one of the wealthiest nations in the world, we also have the most debt and we also are the second highest rate of depression. Marriage.com cites that the second most common reason that marriages fail is money. That's right, trouble with finances. And it's not necessarily that it's a lack of money, but it's a lack of compatibility between a husband and wife on how to handle that money. And so just like everything else in our life, we tend to stretch our finances to the limit. It's like that rubber band that you continue to stretch farther and farther until it gets to that point where there's no more give left in it and all that it can do next is break. And that's how we live our life. We work 24-7 and so does our bank account. Because if we're honest, it's keeping up with the Joneses, right? Your friends just bought a new truck and then for whatever reason you get the itch, right? And you start thinking about it. What, what if I traded mine in? And you find yourself looking at dealership websites, picking out colors, going through the, through the, the holes, the gambit of it, and do, you do mental math gymnastics to try to figure out what kind of a payment you could for, afford each month. I get it, I get it. There's no judgment here because I find myself doing the same exact thing. I still have a truck and the windows go up like this. All the young people in the room have no idea what this means. If you put them in a car with manual windows and manual transmission, it might as well be a spaceship. They're not going anywhere. Whenever it starts to rain, I gotta like roll it up faster. And so we stretch our finances to the max, thinking that that next thing that we buy, that next purchase is gonna be it. It's gonna be the thing that satisfies us. And so, husbands, we convince our wives to let us get that new truck. And you figure out how to work that monthly payment into your budget. And you think you're going to be fine. Like, that's it. I'm good for like 10 years. I'm not going to need to buy anything else. And then about two months later, you realize, I really should have gotten the one with the, the tires and wheels that I wanted. Because it's just not done yet, Right? I've got the truck I wanted, but now it doesn't have the right tires and wheels. And so I just need to do this and then I'll be set. I won't need to buy anything else. I'll be good for a while. And so you drop two grand, you know, and you get the tires and wheels you want. And then you think you're gonna be good for a while. And then summer rolls around and your brother-in-law buys a new boat, right? And you can't let your brother-in-law out, do you? I mean, I'm not worried about Jake. He just bought a kayak, so he's, he's fine. But now your family wants a boat, right? Because you wanna be able to go out and do things together. And so now your family's pressuring you. We gotta get a boat. And so now you're trying to figure out, okay, now we gotta figure out how to balance the truck payment and we've got a boat payment as well. And I'm here to tell you this morning that it is possible for you to find some peace in your finances if you'll learn to give them a break. And look, I, I'm gonna be completely honest with you. I understand that there's probably quite a few people in the room this morning that this is a very uneasy topic. That if you would have known this is what we were talking about today, 
you might have watched online, right? I get it. But if that's you, hear my heart this morning. If you'll just take a moment, relax, take a breath, stop white knuckling the chair in front of you. Maybe let your guard down just a little bit. I believe that God is going to illuminate some things through our text this morning that can help you to find some liberty from your financial fatigue. So if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to Leviticus chapter number 25. It'll be on the screen for you as well this morning. I know what you're thinking. He's preaching on money and he's preaching out of Leviticus. This is gonna be the greatest sermon ever preached. (laughs) Leviticus is everyone's favorite book of the Bible, right? So while you're turning there, I'm gonna just give you some context. I'm gonna lay this out for you so that you understand where we're going. The Israelites have been led out of Egypt by Moses. They're in the wilderness and they've just completed the construction of their mobile tabernacle. This is where God's presence is going to live as they're traveling through the wilderness. But before they leave their encampment at the base of Mount Sinai, God is giving some final instructions to Moses to pass on to the people of Israel. Okay, so we're gonna pick up in Leviticus chapter number 25, and we're gonna read verses one through seven. It says, the Lord said to Moses at Mount Sinai, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter into the land I am going to give you, The land itself must observe a Sabbath to the Lord. For six years, sow your fields, and for six years, prune your vineyards and gather their crops. But in the seventh year, the land is to have a year of Sabbath rest, a Sabbath to the Lord. Do not sow your fields or prune your vineyards. Do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the grapes of your untended vines. The land is to have a year of rest. Whatever the land yields during the Sabbath year will be food for you, for yourself, your male and female servants, and the hired worker and temporary resident who lives among you, as well as for your livestock and the wild animals In your land, whatever the land produces may be eaten. So, just as Israel was commanded to observe a Sabbath rest every seventh day, there was also to be a Sabbath year every seven years, during which the land was going to be given a rest. So, one day a week, one of every seven days, man was intended to rest. And then, one of every seven years, the land was to be granted arrest. So do you see the rhythm that is forming here? You don't plant, you don't harvest. God says that you were permitted to eat only what naturally grew from the fields. That leftover seed that grew on its own could be eaten, but not just by you. This was for your family. This was for your hired workers. This was for those that you brought in to help bring the harvest. This was for the, the foreigners of the land to come in. This was for the poor of the land. Not, not, uh, no one was to be excluded from this. And see, God knew something important about his creation. He created everything with rhythms of rest, not just humanity, 
but all of his creation, even the land itself was intended to have rest. Now, I'm no farmer, but from my understanding, it is important that you allow land to rest. It is important to rotate crops because if you continue to plant on the same plot of land over and over with the same crop year after year, eventually the soil will become depleted of the minerals and nutrients that it needs in order to have a successful harvest. And God knew this. And so he builds into the culture of his people to allow everything to rest. And then after seven cycles of seven years, so seven times seven years, 49 years, you have this 50th year, which is called the year of Jubilee. And this was a special year because not only would the land be granted rest, but money that was owed was to be forgiven. If you had hired workers that came to repay a debt, they were released from that debt. They were allowed to go back to their homes. Land reverted back to its original owner. This is an extreme situation. Think about this. Put yourself in this situation. Let me just paint a picture for you right now. Imagine this, your parents own a 100 acre farm on the outskirts of Jerusalem. At some point before you're born, they fall on hard times and they're forced to sell the family farm to pay off this debt. But not just that, they also have to move across town and begin to work for someone else that lives on the other side of Jerusalem to continue to pay off this debt. And so you're born, and for 50 years, all you know is working someone else's land, paying off a debt that you inherited. No land of your own. But according to the principle that God has laid out here in Jubilee, in that 50th year, you are to be released. You're, you're able to now go home, to go back to your, your family's land, to your family's farm, to work your own land. There's no more debt to be paid off. This is an extreme situation, both economically and theologically. And we're gonna circle back to that. So quickly this morning, I wanna lay out a few principles that I think we can take away from this text that we can apply to our life if we're looking to build a healthy financial life. Number one is this, you'll never be good at stewardship until you understand ownership. You'll never be good at stewardship until you understand ownership. As a young man um, in high school, I had a joint account at Wachovia Bank. I'm dating myself a little bit. But I, I had an account with my parents at Wachovia Bank and we chose this bank because there was a branch in Perry and there was a branch in Gainesville. And I was getting ready to come to college. And so they needed a place that they could you know, put some money in, that sort of thing if I needed it. Now, I worked a little bit, some side jobs during the summer. I worked at a potato chip plant. I don't have time to talk about that today, but you can ask me another time. I got plenty of good stories from that. And then when I came to Gainesville uh, my first year, I started working at a clothing store. But I was very blessed and fortunate 
that my parents were able to help cover my expenses for college. Uh, you know, I would, I would work and have money for gas and those sorts of things, but the majority of my expenses, they were covering those, and I was very fortunate, very blessed that they could do that. I had a Wachovia debit card with my name on it, but the money in that account did not belong to me, right? And so what I began to understand the older that I got I became a much better steward of the money in that account whenever I began to realize that that money did not belong to me. It didn't just magically appear. It was put there by someone else. And good stewards understand that uh, everything belongs to God. God owns it all. Leviticus 25 verse 23. God says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine. And you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. So he's saying here, you can sell your 10 acre farm and go buy this 10 acre farm over here, but that's a temporary sale. It's not meant to be forever. It's not permanent because I am the original owner of the land. Psalm 24 says that the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. That's saying that God created it all. He created this, this earth and everything in it. And so therefore, it all belongs to him. I have a, a picture I want to share with you this morning of a, a calf from our in-laws, my in-laws farm. Um, this is Rosie. And she is the last calf of the season. Sarah and I got to help name this one the other day. So just to give you a little backstory. Her grandmother is named Belle, like Beauty and the Beast. So we came up with Rosie for this calf. Now, my father-in-law is the steward of this farm. He's the steward of that calf. But if you ask him, that's not his calf. That's God's calf. And that land that that calf is grazing on is God's land. And so he is the steward of it. And when we begin to understand that everything that we have belongs to God and he gave it to you, it'll change the way you use it. You'll view your home differently. You'll view your savings account differently. Everything that you've been blessed with comes from the Father of lights above. Every good gift comes from the Father of lights. And so we have to understand that that was given to us and we should be a good steward of it. When we begin to understand that, you'll start seeking his counsel before you make major financial decisions. Listen, if you're not praying before you make a major financial decision, then you're not being a good steward. And you might look at me and say, but yeah, you don't understand, it's a good deal. But did you ask the owner first? And so as we read texts like this today, we'll begin to see that God is directing his people to live with open hands. And whenever we live with open hands, it's intended that whatever we're taking in is not staying there. It's not just meant for me to hold on to with closed fists. And it will start to change your heart towards helping those in need, helping the hurting. And that's gonna lead us into our second point this morning, which is, Sabbath and generosity go hand in hand. Sabbath and generosity go hand in hand. The goal of every believer, of every Christian, should be to live a life of blessing. 
And when I say that, I'm not talking about receiving blessing. It is not our purpose here on earth to live a life where we just continue to receive blessing after blessing, but it should be that we are seeking to live a life where we are being a blessing to those around us. From our text today, we talked about how everyone ate from the land. It wasn't just for you and for your children. It wasn't just for you and your family to eat from the land. This is gonna be hard for, me, for some of you to swallow right now, but you need to hear this. It was intended for the servants to eat from. It was intended for the workers to eat from. It was intended for the foreigners to eat from, for the poor to eat from. This was God's intention. And in the year of Jubilee, debts were forgiven. They were canceled for good. If you loaned your neighbor money, yes, they were supposed to make payments back to you. But if that year of Jubilee arrives, and it doesn't matter if they owed you $200 or $2,000, you're supposed to wipe out that debt. And it's a life of generosity, but that's what God expects of his children. And so much of the livelihood of the Israelites was a direct result of what was grown from the land. And every seventh year, you weren't making any money off of crops. And so this kind of leads me to the crux of this, this message, this point. So get this this morning. If your finances weren't in order, how could you obey the commands of the Lord? If you didn't live within your means for the first six years, then how are you going to survive when that seventh year comes and he, he tells you to stop harvesting, stop receiving an income essentially? And so rather than obeying the command of the Lord to let the land rest, you would continue to harvest because you gotta make money. And for the first six years, you've leaned on your own willpower. You've leaned on your own work ethic. You've relied on your own, um, own strength and on your own financial prowess. And now, as year seven approaches, it's harder and harder for you to trust God to provide. When we live beyond our means, we're taking the reins as God of our own life. That may seem like an overestimation, but it's not. Whenever we live beyond our means financially, we're taking the reins as God of our own life because we're saying, God, I know what you've given, but that's not enough. I need this, I want this, and I'm willing to do whatever it takes to get it. I'll work overtime, I'll extend myself beyond what I should, I'll take time away from my family to pay for it because this is what I need and you haven't provided it. God's expectation is for every Christian to live as a blessing to others. And whenever you take the reins of your own life, you're limiting yourself from being able to walk in obedience. And we saw a great example of how we should live in Acts chapter two. You can go back and study that, of how the early church lived in one accord. They lived together, they shared all good things together. And that's how it was intended to be. But in order for us to be a financial blessing to someone else, you have to have your finances in order. 
I'll, I'll just say it very plain and blunt. I probably have already been that way this morning, but bear with me here. It's really difficult to obey God and bless someone whenever your account's overdrawn. So learning to live within your means frees you up for God to use you to do something life-changing for someone else. And I don't know about you, but that's what I want for my life. I don't want to just live a life where I'm indulging in myself over and over and building up my bank account and buying what I want, but never addressing the needs of the people around me. I want for God to use me to to do something life-changing emotionally and spiritually, but also financially in the people around me. And so maybe this morning you're, you're hearing this and you're receiving it. And you're agreeing and you're like, yes, I, I want that to be me, but I, I don't even know where to start. I'm not sure how to get to that point in my life. I would say that you need to start by creating a budget. If you plan to fail, then you're, uh, fa- if you fail to plan, you're planning to fail. And a, creating a budget and then sticking to it is gonna help you create that space that you need to be able to be a blessing in someone else's life. If you need help with that, we have small groups here at DCC that can help you put together a plan for your life of how you can get out of debt and start building a life that, where you're uh, living within your means. And, and if that's something that you're not comfortable with, come set up an appointment with me. I told you, I love building budgets. I love balancing the budget. Come down, I'll sit down and talk to you about it. We'll work it out together. But if I can use a simple illustration this morning, it it would be this. You can't eat four cupcakes if you only have three cupcakes. Right? Somebody needs to tell our government that. (laughs) I think that should be like a litmus test question for anyone who wants to be a politician. If you have three cupcakes, how many cupcakes can you eat? Somebody in the back just woke up. He's talking about cupcakes up there? It's, it's National Ice Cream Day. It's, it applies. It rolls over. So if you walk out of here today and you try to grab two ice creams when you're only supposed to have one, somebody's probably going to lay hands on your Adam's apple. When we live maxed out, we're demonstrating a lack of faith in God. And you'll be able to identify this in your life because you'll say things like, I have to work today, otherwise I won't get that promotion. Like it all depends on you. You'll say things like, I can't support that ministry because I have to make a truck payment. Maybe you bought too much truck. That's what the Israelites did. The Israelites bought too much truck. Because what happened was whenever they did eventually enter into the promised land, the Bible says for 490 years, they made excuses and disregarded the Sabbath year. And God warned them. He said, listen, if you don't obey this command, the land will enter into a forced rest. You won't have a choice in the matter. And you'll plant seed in vain and your enemies will consume it. And so it's interesting, whenever they fall into sin, idolatry, all of those things, 
and God sends them into exile for their sin, the length of time that he designated for that exile was 70 years because that's the exact amount of time that the Sabbath rest had been disobeyed. If math is not your strong suit, I'll break it down for you. 490 years divided by seven, 70 years. And so for 70 years, the land entered into a forced rest. Now you may ask, what does this have to do with my finances? Everything, everything. Because Jesus said that we can't serve two masters. And so many of our failures come as a result of us serving the wrong master. When you're living beyond your means, you're serving the wrong master. So look at somebody right now, tell them your finances need a rest. Your finances need a rest. Look at your second favorite neighbor, tell them your finances need a rest. They need a break. I don't need to buy those custom length golf clubs. I'm terrible at golf. It doesn't matter. You could give me Tiger Woods golf clubs. I'm still gonna slice it over to the next screen. It doesn't matter. So learn to live within your means so that you can be a good steward of what God has given you. Yes, to provide for your family, but also to help others. And ultimately, so that you will begin to put all of your faith in God. Because he is both creator and sustainer, amen? He's the one that provides all that I need. He provides my daily bread. I don't do that. And so when we look to him as our sustainer, it puts things into perspective. So many people want to surrender part of their life, but they're not willing. They want to hold back some areas. They're will, it's crazy to me. They want to give up. They'll, they'll surrender their eternity to him, but then they don't want to surrender their paycheck. I don't, I don't understand it, but he's called us to be all in. He's not interested in partial surrender. He wants complete faith. He wants you to put all of your faith in him for your career. He wants you to put all of your faith in him for your family, for your health, for your eternity and for your finances. Number three, this is my last point. God's math is greater than my math. God's math is greater than my math. Leviticus 25 verses 18 through 22. God says, follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? This would be the question I would ask. But I love God's response here. He says, I will send such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. You get this? They're looking one step ahead. God's looking three steps ahead. He says, while you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes. Amen. Eat those leftovers, right? It's miraculous provision. Whenever we begin to put all of our trust in God, it's miraculous provision. And I gotta go here. Look, I can't stand up here and talk about finances and ignore tithing. Tithing is not prosperity gospel, it's kingdom principle. And if you haven't figured out yet, that's where we need to start. 
Tithing is not prosperity gospel, it's kingdom principle. And it's understanding that whenever we trust God with everything, he can provide more in six days than I can do when I work seven days. He can provide for eight years whenever I've only planted for six years. You gotta understand this this morning. Whenever we give 90%, when we give that 10%, he can do more with 90% than I can ever do with 100%. If you don't believe that, if, if you don't, see that to be the case. If that math doesn't work for you, then I'd say that your view of God is too small. Because I serve an amazing God. I serve a God that built this galaxy that hung the stars that spoke and the sun was formed. That built this earth with his breath and with his hands and formed the intricacies of the human body. And beyond that, he, he gave himself on the cross to save us from our sins. He can do it. He can stretch my little weekly youth pastor paycheck to cover the bills. You gotta understand it. Tithing is not so that you can provide for the church. It's so that God can provide for you. DCC does not need my 10%. If you think that's what this is about, it will survive just fine if I stopped paying tithes. And you know what? It'll be fine if you didn't pay your tithes. But what I've recognized in my life is that tithing is not for the church and it's not for God. Tithing is for us. It's for God to provide. And I wanna live under God's blessing and not his curse. So will you decide this morning to put all of your trust in him? I've heard this argument plenty of times before. People say it's tithing's Old Testament. No, no, it's kingdom principle. It's kingdom principle. Listen, I'll show it to you. I'll prove it to you. In the book of Hebrews, it talks about how Abraham paid a tithe to the king of righteousness and peace. He paid the tithe to the king of righteousness and peace. Over 500 years before the law was written. Long before the Israelites were even a people. Before that law existed, Abraham didn't need a law because he understood this was kingdom principle. And so beyond seeing this demonstrated time and time again throughout scripture, I'll continue to to trust in God and believe that tithing is, is a necessity because I've seen the fruit of it firsthand in my life. Sarah and I have witnessed it in our life in three years of marriage. And then beyond that, my parents are here this morning and you can ask them after, after service, they'll tell you story after story of how God has provided for our family. They're not rich. They drove here in a Chevy Malibu. But God's always provided. And we've been through ups and downs. We've been through promotions and lost jobs. And he has never failed us. So in closing, I'm I'm, I'm almost there, don't worry. How does this all tie back into Jesus. 
the year of Jubilee is also called the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord. And then this was basically a shorthand that developed between Old Testament and New Testament. And it was just a reference back to the law that followed Jubilee. And in Luke chapter four, Jesus stands in the synagogue and he unrolls the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. He finds his place and he begins to read from what would become for us chapter 61 of Isaiah. And this is what Jesus said. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. Don't miss this. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, Jubilee was intended to be the reset button for Israel. Debts to be canceled, land to be returned to the original owner. But the problem was, is that the people never got it right. They never figured it out. They never followed through with all of the commands of Jubilee. Enter Jesus. He reads this prophetic text from Isaiah and then he sits down because Jewish rabbis would sit down to teach. So he was about to learn them something. He sits down and he says something that would have blown the minds of everyone listening that day in the synagogue. Because you have to understand that these people grew up hearing the law, understanding it. And even though they didn't observe every aspect, even though they didn't observe the commands of Jubilee, they were well familiar with it. And he sits down and he says this, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Jesus is saying here, I'm here to do it all. I'm here to finish the work, to do all of these things, the things that the people could never get right. He's bringing the full effect of the year of Jubilee. You see, because we were all enslaved to sin with no way out. We couldn't pay that debt. We could work for the rest of eternity and we couldn't pay that debt. But Jesus comes in and he sets free those that are bound by sin. He frees the oppressed and he proclaims liberty over us. He pays the price in full. Here's my favorite part. Property returns to its original owner. We, the creation, are returned to the rightful owner, the creator. Thanks for listening to the Destiny Community Church Podcast. To learn more about DCC, including our service times and location, visit us at destinycommunitychurch.org.